0: Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great podcast. The first draft podcast with ESPN experts Mel Kuyper Jr., Todd McShay, and Phil Yates, keeping tabs on the latest in the NFL draft, is now twice a week, posting every Monday and Thursday. Be sure to check out Monday's show on YouTube as well. Also, the final episode is here, exclusive on ESPN Plus, Man in the Arena with Tom Brady. 22 seasons and 10 Super Bowl appearances. Tom Brady like you've never heard him before. Featuring Tom's three sisters, Giselle Buncheon, Tom Brady Sr., Rob Gronkowski, Michael Strahan, and more. All episodes now streaming on ESPN Plus, presented by Under Armour. (music) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the right time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Coming up on this episode of The Right Time, we're going to talk about terrible typographical errors. We are also going to get deep into the NBA playoffs. But first... All right, so... Uh... I was thinking about going to see the Celtics and the Nets on Saturday, right? I just figured it would be cracking cuz it was cracking in Boston, right? Like you saw it, the vibe, everything like that. I was like, "Cool, that thing's going to be cracking." I had a what I would term a general idea of how much uh tickets cost to go see the Nets in the playoffs because I've done it before, right? Like I could get in a couple years ago to go see the Nets in the playoffs from like third row, maybe third, maybe fifth. But I could get in there about three, $400 a ticket, you know, call homie, be like, how much you want to put on it? Then we go, man, listen, I called my brother and I was like, yo, how much you willing to put on trying to go see the Nets and the Celtics tonight? He said $200. Dog, $200. You could wipe your ass for $200 at the Barclays Center for Saturday. Like anywhere in a seat that I was wanting to sit in was probably going to cost about $1,500. And you probably saying, was you too good for the upper deck? Y'all think I'm too good for the upper deck. If I go to that game and y'all see me in the upper deck, you think ain't nobody taking no picture and putting that on the internet? Like, oh, damn, I thought he had money. You know what I'm saying? Y'all ain't going for that. It was really going to cost me like two G's for the Nets. For the Nets. Hell no, I wasn't doing that, man. And good thing I did not watch the game. What struck me about the game and watching it before we even get to the basketball was I'm trying to figure out why them tickets was costing $1,500 because it wasn't cracking in there at all, at least from what I could tell on television. Like, I ain't seen none of that energy, none of that vibe, whatever it is. They down 2-0. They playing against the Celtics. figure Celtics fans coming in, all of that stuff, and it still looked dead because the wildest thing about this whole experiment that the Nets have run is it don't make nobody feel nothing. It doesn't make anybody hate them. It's made people become wildly annoyed by them. Perhaps it has made you dislike some of the players But in terms of the Brooklyn Nets being something that engenders something from people around, no, just doesn't do it. Hadn't done it from the very beginning. Now, if we want to get past the feeling part, bottom line is this was as ambitious an experiment as there had been, right? The obvious, like most ambitious personal experiment anybody's engaged in is the Miami Heat from 2010 to 2014. When LeBron and Chris Bosh showed up, Dwayne Wade was already there and everything that came subsequent from that. we never seen anything like that. They basically decided to start ground up on that team and go from there. Now, the Nets are a little bit different. They didn't ground up this. Not quite. They still had a core of a halfway decent team that they added Kyrie Irving to, and then Kevin Durant, of course, comes in the next year after being injured, and then James Harden comes through and all of that. But they already had a bit of a team there, and they traded the rest of it in order to get James Harden, in order to make this thing go. And three years into this experiment, and yes, I understand James Harden didn't come in until year two. It was understood that Kevin Durant would not play until year two. But the bottom line is this experiment has been going on for three years, right? They had three years to try to figure out what exactly it was they were going to do or what their play was. And through three years, the Nets have won one playoff series, a grand total of one playoff series. If they lose this series, and as we are recording this, they are down 3-0 to the Celtics. This is the biggest failure I can possibly think of in team construction. Like you think about what a failure people think the 2004 Lakers were when the Lakers brought in Gary Payton and Carl Malone to go along with that team. And you think about the chaos that team played under. The Kobe Bryant rape trial was going on. The Kobe Bryant snitching situation had gone on. We stopped that from being a personal matter and made it into a team matter, right? Where you say, man, I'll do what Shaq do. Remember that? Okay. All of that was going on, and that team still made it to the NBA Finals with all of it going on, with Shaq starting to break down, with Carl Malone, as I recall, hurt in the postseason. All of those things. They still got to the Finals. You're telling me a team with Kevin Durant, I don't give a damn who else is on the team. I don't give a damn how long everybody played. A team with Kevin Durant can't get past the second round but once in two years? Oh, somebody got to pay. And that somebody's probably going to be Steve Nash. And I'll be honest with you, if Steve Nash doesn't pay, I can only conclude that this is an unserious organization. That's it. Now, Having a back and forth on the tweets with my buddy Stan Van Gundy. And you guys need to understand this. I love Stan. I'm as big a Stan fan as there is. I'm a fan of him as a coach, but I'm also more importantly like a fan of him as a person. I'm really big into Stan. Stan and I disagree about this. Now, of course, a major difference is Stan is a coach. So Stan is going to view this in all likelihood through the lens that a coach would view this through. 100% totally get that. However, while Stan and I were going back and forth about Steve Nash being fired, the point that I started with was, given that they've only won one playoff series in these last two years, three years in total with the experiment, though, again, Steve Nash was not here for the first year of it. Okay, I get that. But he has been here for these last two. And I thought he did a halfway decent job last year. This series, I saw no evidence that the coach was adding any value to the team. I did not see that. Maybe you saw it. I did not see that the coach was adding any value to the team. Okay, that tells me you have to fire the coach. Like, even if it's nobody's fault, if you want to make this blameless, you got to fire the coach. If you want to say that the blame falls on the players, which I, by the way, don't think is a terrible conclusion to draw, you still got to fire the coach. The players are not pieces that you can really get rid of or can really change, right? The coach is the piece that can be adjusted. The coach is the guy that hasn't really done anything to demonstrate that he's particularly special at this. The coach is probably the guy who has to go if this is a serious organization. Now, if you want to make the argument to me that the general manager is the one who needs to go, okay, I'm down to listen, right? A, the general manager made the call to hire Nash. But see, this is the thing. If you fire the general manager, you're also firing the coach because the general manager is going to bring in his own coach in all likelihood. Okay, so we've got that part. The other one is, as of right now, until evidence to the contrary, I misphrased this yesterday, but still. Yesterday I said, until I see something change, they traded James Harden straight up for Seth Curry. And people are like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Don't forget about Andre Drummond. You're right. Andre Drummond, too. If you want to say they traded James Harden for Seth Curry and Andre Drummond, that's fine. That should sound the same to me. You know what I'm saying? Like that sounds, they sound like the same dude. Like that's what you got for James Harden because you got back Ben Simmons. And if you were operating on the presumption that Ben Simmons was going to play this year, why? I was not operating on that presumption. Even if it wasn't about his back, it was going to be about something else. Were you really operating on the presumption that Ben Simmons was going to play? And so with the finite window of what you got, And the fact that Kevin Durant is in his 15th year in the NBA, every year got to be win now. And yeah, I know it all blew up at Harden. It was a little bit beyond their control. But then that comes down to management maybe giving too much power to Durant and Kyrie. Kevin Durant said, I want Kyrie Irving to play. The front office should have said no. Period. Like to me. They panicked during Omicron. You remember that? Everybody was going down with Omicron. They were pulling dudes up off the street. A whole bunch of guys could be like, I played in the NBA. That would never be able to say that otherwise because of Omicron. They were down bodies. They panicked. And they're like, yo, we need somebody else in here. And then they brought in Kyrie. It ain't really do nothing. Y'all still the seven seed, right? It didn't get you to any place necessarily, but that's what blew the whole thing up. It was that right there? Like It was enough that James Harden was obviously just getting tired of Kyrie and his nonsense. But what seemed to very clearly blow the thing up is James Harden's like, what you mean you're going to let this dude play half the time? And this is my question about letting him play half the time. I guess maybe it helped their record, but did it help them as a basketball team? Because they got some time to work him back into the rotation, right? They changed the laws in New York. There wasn't a lot of time, but they had some time. Did that look like a team that played together before? It didn't. And so it's harsh. It's terrible. Nobody liked the sound of it. You got to fire the coach. Now, I don't know who the hell you hire. I wouldn't want to coach that team. I got absolutely no idea who the guy is that you look at that is qualified to do this job. Because one tricky thing about the NBA that I think is lost, it takes a great coach to coach great players. Like, unless you're going to just roll the ball out there, which I suppose is an option. The idea that, I mean, how good of a coach do you need if you got insert player here? You still need a really good coach. You still need a very good coach. Is there a very good coach available who wants to sign up to deal with Kyrie and his nonsense? Like Durant, I don't think is that difficult for you to deal with. It's Kyrie. Look, man, coaches barely want to put up with Trey Young. You think they want to put up with Kyrie?
1: Did you see what he said? This almost sounded like a parody. I don't want to be too cliche, but I don't have a lot of answers for how you make up time from October until now.
0: If he did say that, we got to toss him overboard, dog. I just can't
1: when usually teams will be gelling and things would be feeling.
0: Yeah, good. yeah. you did. But again, with Boston, if he had acted right, he could have been part of that. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the thing with Kyrie. You could have been part of what Boston was doing, except you couldn't hold it together. And then now, yes, you could have been part of this whole team gelling together, except you ain't want to. Like the Celtics are their own interesting story for me, because. They have been playing together for a long time. But it's not about playing together for a long time in the context of the season. It's about the fact that they've been playing together for years. Years. Like, this collection of dudes has basically been together for five seasons. The guys that matter. Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart. And, by the way, bringing Al Horford back, who suddenly looks like he can play basketball again. Right? They've been doing it for years and the big move and why the Nash thing looks so bad for the Nets is the coach that the Nets need seems to pretty clearly be the guy who coaches for the Celtics who used to work for the Nets. It's Udoka. And the thing about Udoka when it came to the Celtics was Brad Stevens had gotten that team as far as it was going to go. They needed somebody that could square up with them dudes and be like, look, you're going to max this out or not. Brad Stevens is a guy to raise the ceiling of a bunch of pretty good guys. He wasn't the guy to turn a pretty good guy into a superstar. Jason Tatum looks like superstar. Jalen Brown looks like he's approaching superstar. All the things that they hope when they draft them, because I thought they were just mid spades, like Queen and King. You know what I'm saying? No, they're looking like jokers and deuces right now. Like, that's crucial. That's very important. And Udoka was the guy to go ahead and pull that off. I think that you could have had him with the Nets because you needed somebody that them dudes, like, legitimately respected. And if they didn't respect him walking in, we'll respect him by the time it was over. Boston was looking terrible in January. And then they all decided, oh, wow, this thing is really going to crack. And then they went and they made it happen. Instead, the Nets, with no culture in place, decided to let the tone setter for the culture be Kyrie Irving. And yeah, it would be really unfortunate if Steve Nash had to be the person to lose his job as a result of these mistakes that everybody else made. I get you. But take it from somebody who's been fired a few times. It ain't necessarily because you deserve it, dog. It's just because a change needs to be made. Did Brad Stevens, quote-unquote, if he had been fired, which he wasn't in Boston, but he wouldn't have necessarily deserved to get fired, but they needed a different coach. Frank Vogel, they needed a different coach. And right now, the Nets seem to need a different coach. They also seem to need not Kyrie Irving, but you ain't going to fix that part. So the part you can fix is to go get a different coach. Otherwise, they're going to be coming out here again as like a 6-7 and seven seed. And we're going to look at Kevin Durant. And if he's good with it, that's his call. But man, your last chance is to win. And you bet on these dudes? You bet on this franchise? And you bet on that guy? I'm not saying he's going to regret it. I am saying that I would. But hey, that's just me. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting. Spring is the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering off. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your training plan in mind. Personalize your workout, whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance. Peloton classes are designed to help focus on your needs and goals while challenging yourself at every level. Now you can catch up on your favorite NBA games with NBA League Pass while you push yourself to new levels of fitness. Watch your favorite games and win your workouts with NBA League Pass on Peloton and visit OnePeloton.com. Peloton all-access membership and NBA League Pass subscription required. As for the rest of the playoffs, the last game I saw were the Suns and the Pelicans. So, like, I want to talk about that one. And I want to talk about it, honestly, with you. So, like, how it feel that, I mean, you got the championship out of it. Don't get me wrong, right? Can never take that away. But did you expect that three years after making the Anthony Davis trade that the Pelicans would actually be better than the Lakers with the guys they had?
1: Yeah, I did not expect that. That does happen, I feel like, in sports franchise history, where you trade the like one star for the four players or for the three players, and then subsequent team actually ends up being better in the long run. What happened with the Cowboys in terms of how they got Emmitt Smith and Aikman or something like
0: that? Well, it wasn't those guys, but yes, they traded Herschel Walker. And it wound up being like Michael Irvin was already there. Aikman was already there, but they did get Emmitt Smith as one of the picks. It was Emmitt Smith. It was a bunch of guys that they wound up getting as the picks and it was overwhelming. But in basketball, normally you get the best player, you win the trade, right? Like that's why people can be willing to throw so much stuff in because overall you get the best player, you win the trade. I don't know if the Lakers won the trade anymore. Well, I'll I'll put it like this. We have to stop looking at trades as zero sum, right? Like there is a winner and a loser. And I could argue on this trade that there were two winners because, again, the Lakers did get a championship out of this. So, I mean, if you make the trade to get Anthony Davis and Anthony Davis plays a big role and you win in a championship, you didn't lose. I think that we'd all feel very confident saying that one. But when the trade happened, my man Jeremy made this point, reminded me of something I said about when they made that trade. When the Lakers traded for Kareem Abdul Jabbar in 1975, obviously the Bucks did not get back what's in line with having Kareem Abdul Jabbar, but they did get back at least two players whose jerseys got retired. Right? Like they got back players that made their team feel good. And even not too long after that, the 80s come around, and the Bucs are one of the three best teams in the East for most of the 1980s, three or four best teams there. That's them. Right. I mean, you go look at it. You'd be surprised with the Don Nelson years, even Larry Costello, how good those teams were. But they got back something that they could build around, even if it wasn't about building a champion. It was building a team that the locals could at least get down with. That's what I thought about while I was watching the Pelicans last night. They lost Anthony Davis in that trade, but they liked that team. They have now a lot more than they liked any team that Anthony Davis was on. Like them cats was out there fighting them. Cats is out there scrapping and by the way, they got a team that pointed out one of the weirdest things about the world. Have you ever noticed that dudes who are named Herb are not actually Herbs? Like, I feel like we came up with the wrong slang term when we broke Herb out. Like, it works, it fits. But like, when I think about cats I know named Herb, they talk a little slow, you know what I'm saying? They little be a little old school with it, but they don't tend to be Herbs. I bring that up because New Orleans drafted this dude named Herb Jones. Like, at once, he is a Herb, but he is not a Herb at all. Like, he not a Herb in the way that I say Herb. But when you meet that dude and they be like, yo, man, this Herb. I was going to Herb. Hey, man, slow motion. I don't know if he even talks like that, but he look like he does. His whole vibe is giving us that thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, he a dude named Herb Jones. Man, Herb Jones out here killing it. Now, granted, they didn't get him in the Anthony Davis trade. I understand that. But still, you look at what that team has become and you look at the way they fighting and the way that they play. I would rather have this team scrap it out in the first round than Anthony Davis and his squad's losing in six. If I were a fan, just in terms of something to watch. And I don't know if Phoenix is in real trouble. I mean, not having Devin Booker matters. I still think they should wind up being good enough to beat the Pelicans. Like, I still think that's going to, you know, still be the thing for them. With Booker, I, I mean, I thought they were going to walk through the West. Without Booker, of course, we talk about something different. But it's got to be fun for you if you are a New Orleans fan. And, you know, with the pipe dream that maybe just maybe one day Zion Williamson going to play. Like, we got to remember this about Zion. Zion ain't, like, he's a what if in the sense of playing all the time. But he was a legitimate all-star at 21 years old. Like a legitimate all-star. So uh, if they get him with what they're building, they could have something. Even if they're not winning everything, it can be fun. And in the end, this thing is supposed to be fun. Like, I'm watching that Minnesota-Memphis series, and it's fun. Minnesota got all the lemon booty, though, boy. They stay building up leads just to throw them things away. I don't know why it is. They That's, that's, that's who and what they are. Shout out to you, Carl Towns, by the way. He put up a 33 in game four. So I know y'all going to act like games two and three didn't happen. Only games that happened were games one and four. I recognize that. I Look, here's the thing I'm going to say about Carl Towns, because every time Carl Towns do something good, people want to holler at me. Every time Carl Towns do something bad, people want to holler at me. I'm not trying to have a Carl Towns referendum after every game. All I'm saying is this. On my end, the fact that he can be the guy in games one and four is why I hate so much that he can be the guy in games two and three. Like, Do you get that now? Y'all keep telling me that Carl Towns is such a great player because he can shoot threes. He's also a dude that can go out here in a playoff game and only attempt four shots. The only attempt four shots thing is a much bigger problem than the ability to shoot three pointers is a good thing to have. That's where I come from on Carl Towns in this. And so you can talk about him as somebody who's going to help your fantasy basketball team. I bet he's excellent as your fantasy basketball team, but they in the playoffs now and the number one overall pick is seven years into his career and his team can't count on him. Even if you think he's the best player on the team, you think he's a better player than Anthony Edwards, cool. Can you count on Carl Towns? Be sure that Carl Towns is going to show up. And I don't mean show up simply in the sense of playing well. I mean, show up in the sense of putting up five shots, not four. Can you be sure of that? No, you can't be sure of that. And if you can't be sure of that, why in the world would you put on your cape for that? That's the part that I don't get about y'all when it comes to Carl Towns. A dude that fades in these times like this. Why would you waste energy arguing on his behalf for me? And look, I know what some of y'all are thinking, but come on, man. We can't be talking about that forever. Life goes on. It happens. Like he, we here, we now. And he's supposed to be balling. And he does here and there. That's it. I would also, I want to tell everybody in the league, man, just because they put that microphone on you. Don't feel like you got to, like, say nothing. You saw that with him before the game? Hey, man, I only only seen them in their house. They got to come to Minnesota now. Dog, you talk about Minnesota like it's Cabrini Green. That's not how it works, man. You're going to have to at least give it, like, some kind of slangy nickname if you're going to try to make it sound like it's some terrifying spot. Like Kevin Garnett used to call it soda. Like, we're up here in soda. You're going to have to do that. They got to come to the soda. That sounds like one thing as opposed to now they have to play us in Minnesota. It's not going to work, Carl. That's not it. Like, like, like you should have known they was going to play that and it wasn't going to wind up being a good look and allow Desmond Bain to respond with. We're going to walk up in your trap and we going to take over your trap. <laughs> You know how that sounds a little bit different? I don't even know where Desmond Bain from. I don't know. If, actually, I do know. He's from Richmond, Indiana. Maybe Richmond, Indiana got some gangster to it. I don't know. Desmond Bain went to uh, TCU. Maybe he was out there hanging out in the real Fort Worth. I don't know. But somehow he managed to sound a lot more gangster than you have never been to Minnesota before, guys. And that's what happens when people feel pressured to sound gangster, right? And so when I was in college. Uh, our dorm, some cats had come up with a very good idea, which was like an alumni association for the dorm. Like, older heads would come back and just try to guide the youngsters, right? And we did kind of like an induction ceremony and initiation or something. They woke us up in the middle of the night and had us walking around and doing chants and stuff. Black people love ritual. Anyway, so we out there, and there's this one cat, and I don't want to say his name, because he do TV and stuff now. I don't want y'all going to clown him, but if you went to school with me, you know what I'm talking about. And so this dude he was like decidedly less gangster than the other dudes that were up there talking, you know? And so he was talking about how our dorm had won the residence hall step show the year before. Very big deal, prestigious event, okay? And so he starts talking about how we had won the step show and this cat's up there that were all on the step team and just from different places. And it's like, hell yeah, we did that. Yeah, yeah, we crushed that. You know, they all talking that. But our man who doesn't have the gangster in him He got up, and after they said that, he goes, we were the best in the whole school. Dog, you ain't have to try. You know what I'm saying? You didn't have to try. A year or two later, I saw that dude almost get his ass kicked with a gun in his hand. Leaving the basketball game, I wasn't with him. I was in the car behind him, and the locals... And it was a little dicey on the back streets back then. The locals were like slapping people's cars when they walked past. And my man decided like he had had enough. And so he gets out the car and he's like, yo, don't touch my car. And the dude's like, man, get back in your car. Yo, don't touch my car. And I'm like, what is this in his hand? And by the time I realized it was just like a little old 22, dude on the porch was like, hey, you can go ahead and put your little old pistol away, bro. Which is exactly what he did before he got in his car and drove away you imagine how embarrassing it would be to get your ass kicked with a pistol in your hand? They weren't about to shoot nobody. They knew you weren't about to shoot nobody. That's the thing, Carl. They know you not about to shoot nobody. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with not being about to shoot nobody. They got to come to Minnesota now. Yeah, that's why they brought heavy coats. Now what? If you haven't heard, it's brought to you by the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax. CarMax, here to innovate.
2: We know you can't be on top of all the news and information of the day. No need for the social media feeds. We got
1: you. Now, if you haven't heard. All right, Bo, this first story comes from science.
3: Hey Bomani, it's Grace Kay from Business Insider here, telling you about a story I wrote this week about Elon Musk's sales pitch for colonizing Mars. The comments came from an interview that was recorded between Musk and the head of TED conferences, Chris Anderson. During the conversation, Musk talked about some of his long-term goals for SpaceX, most notably his intention to colonize Mars. He emphasized that while his plans for building a self-sustaining city on the planet come with a price tag between $100 billion to $10 trillion, it will be a far from luxurious affair, at least not in the beginning. The SpaceX CEO said, quote, the sales pitch for going to Mars is it's dangerous, it's cramped, you might not make it back. It's difficult, it's hard work, end quote. Musk also compared being the first travelers to Mars to early explorers of Antarctica. In reality, Mars is far from a friendly planet for humans. It has an average temperature of negative 80 degrees Fahrenheit, according to NASA. The atmosphere is not breathable for humans, and any humans without special gear would die within minutes from the low atmospheric pressure, which scientists have said could cause skin and organs to rapidly rupture. In the same interview, Musk said he plans to make tickets to Mars affordable and cited a hypothetical $100,000 price point. The richest man in the world has been working towards colonizing Mars for many years now. Musk has said SpaceX's Starship, the spacecraft he intends to use to transport people and materials to Mars, could have its first orbital launch within a few months. Though the Starship is still pending regulatory approval.
0: Yo, I'm gonna be honest with you. All I hear when I hear that, I want somebody to rob him. Like, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. You'll feel where I'm coming from here. All you doing now is stunting. This is stupid. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. This is no logic. This is just I'm so rich. Look what I'm about to do. I'm showing everybody how rich I am. That's all it is. And in my life, when you want to show everybody how rich you are, somebody robs you. That's how we enforce humility. And don't get me wrong. I think robbing people is the most hating shit in the world. Go get your own, right? That's generally how I feel about that. But if you got money to go to Mars, fool, hell no. Nah. And as much as I hear that, and he talk about how terrible it is and everything else, I'm like, nobody would want to go to Mars. But at the same time, man, these white folks trying to move into the Brownsville, Brooklyn. They trying to move into the South Bronx. They moving into all kinds of places that I thought that they would have gone to Mars too before they moved. But I said, you see all these white folks at Harlem? I definitely thought they would have gone to Mars first. Right. So, hey, look, if they willing to come gentrify all these neighborhoods on the street, there's a bunch of them that's willing to go to Mars. They know we ain't going to be there. Watch every movie you've seen from the past. With the exception of Homeboys in Outer Space, white folks got no reason to believe that we come up behind them. We damn sure ain't got the money for that stuff. They're going to be out there with Will Smith and Jada. Basically, that's it. Hanging out allegedly in the Scientology pod that they're going to set up on Mars. That's it. And by the way, Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter all by himself and news for you. That is terrifying terrifying one man having control of something that controls so much information and that one man by the way being mr crypto dude oh no 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 this is all bad but you get a chance look up how elon musk is trying to finance this whole thing oh man this whole thing might be evil knievel trying to jump over that canyon
2: (laughs) we'll see how it goes this next one comes from culture i'm julian lucas a staff writer at the new yorker From the 19th century on, European empires like France, Britain, and Germany took hundreds of thousands of artworks and artifacts from the African societies they conquered. These works ended up in some of the world's great art collections, from the Louvre and the British Museum to the Met. Now, a movement to return them to their countries of origin has achieved unprecedented success. The Smithsonian has agreed to give its entire collection of Benin bronzes back to Nigeria, while France has already returned a collection of royal portrait sculptures to the former Kingdom of Dahomey in present-day Benin. Many are celebrating the dawn of a new era of reparative justice in the world of art. But the restitution movement has come this far before, only to be crushed and forgotten. I reviewed a fascinating new book called Africa's Struggle for its Art, History of a Post-Colonial Defeat by Professor Benedict Savoy, who was one of the authors of France's new restitution policy. Savoy tells the story of a movement that began in the 1960s as African countries gained independence. African leaders and intellectuals issued strident calls for the return of cultural heritage, with one journalist writing that it was time to liberate the black deities from their captivity in the white world. For two decades, a fight for restitution raged in newspapers, on television, and even the floor of the United Nations. Some famous artifacts were returned, but the movement ultimately fell victim to a backlash, which Savoy's book reveals was fomented by museum directors in Europe. Their confidential strategy involved hiding information about their collections, casting doubt on the ability of Africans to conserve their own heritage, and declaring themselves the universal guardians of world culture. In exposing their methods, Savoy hopes to prevent a similar fate from befalling today's restitution movement. Returning art has the capacity not only to right historical wrongs, but to spur creativity in formerly colonized countries. Or, as the novelist Ishmael Reed once put it, create renewed enthusiasms for the icons of aesthetically victimized civilizations.
0: Have you received any evidence to indicate that Europeans have gotten less arrogant over the years? Because their argument and the biggest one that they have is we are the proper caretakers of this culture and that the Africans will not be able to. Now, what I'm assuming that they will use as an argument about the Africans' inability to take care of this stuff is going to wind up being a financial one. Right. Like it's not a matter if they're not going to show enough care and concern and all of this stuff. Obviously, the people care and concern about it. But you're just basically going to say they don't have the resources in order to keep the stuff upright. And why they ain't got the resources to keep the stuff upright, Mr. White Man. You, y'all, all these people that robbed them of their stuff in the first place are now using that as an explanation as to why it is that they can't give them back their stuff. That's fundamentally what it comes down to. My thing on it, I want them to be able to get their stuff back. I really, really do. And over the years, I have come to understand the importance of this. Like, I took a course on reparations at Duke, and they got into talking about all the artwork that Jews in Europe had lost during the Holocaust and had gone to the Nazis. And it didn't land with me. Like, when I'm thinking about reparations, I'm thinking about slavery. You know, I'm thinking about these sorts of things. Like, you're telling me about pictures, right? I didn't like fully grasp and appreciate the importance of preserving that culture and people being able to like tie back to what it is that they had done before. And one thing that is rough about like being black and American is history for us in this country starts with chains, right? So that's like the importance of like the Afrocentric movement of Malefia Asante and other people like that. And I have, Lots of criticisms of Asante and what he does and the hyper-masculinity of it all and everything else. But I also recognize and appreciate the value of giving us a starting place in our history that does not start um, in subjugation, that does not start in bondage, that does not start in slavery. I get that point. What we've done with Africans, while they, I think, are more aware of the history that they have because they are still on their own land, but at the same time, there's a real value in seeing those things, right? Like having them in front of you. Like the Egyptians, for example, I look at the Egyptians, they like Babe Ruth. You know what I'm saying? Everybody else hitting 15 home runs, they was hitting 50. Like they were so far ahead in advance in the whole world. And all they stuff is like 40 blocks from my house here. Now, again, I think those people are aware of this stuff, but the pride that you have in seeing your greatness, right? Seeing what you came from. And that's something that we as black people in this country are largely deprived of is being able to point to the greatness that we came from. That's why you wind up with these people being so damn over the top on it. We came from kings and queens. Look, bro, we black people. It ain't the king family reunion. Some of us came from peasants. You need to understand that. But at the same time, I'm operating for privilege when I say that because I know those things. Other people don't. They find it out late. They need to recognize that they don't come from slaves. And just like I feel like with these people, something that's more tangible to tell you that you didn't come from a colony right like you did not come there was a big world before this knowing it is one thing being able to see it is another and this is just another level of the battery of colonialism and everything has done to the continent of africa only to have them people then tell you well i don't think you're going to be capable of taking care of your own stuff right and let me tell you honestly the most insulting thing about all of it Dave, i don't remember i told you about this but i went to paris a few years ago and loved it. And I noticed immediately how much differently the people treated me versus being in America. Like not that I walk around America, just feeling hated all the time, but there was a tangible difference. And what somebody told me was my man, Jim Jensen on the tweets. He made a good point about this. He said, he listened to something and there was a professor who talked about how, when she got to France, she felt the same thing that I felt an American professor, but as her French got better, they started treating her worse because then they thought that she was a colonist, Right. The level of arrogance in France is such that me, descendant of American slaves, gets more respect than the people they themselves colonized. You see what I mean? They would feel better about a museum in the United States run by a black person curating their stuff than the people whose stuff it actually was. The descendants of the people who came up with the stuff in the first place. Because their arrogance can't stop them from thinking of these people as anything other than beneath them. They can see me as an American. They can never see those people as people. And that's crazy.
1: All right, this last one comes from science. Here it is.
4: Hi folks, my name is Matt Simon. I'm a science reporter at Wired Magazine, here to talk to you about ocean soundscapes, as I wrote about in a recent article. We all know the oceans are rapidly warming, but less well known is how that's changing the way sound travels in the seas. Sound moves much easier through water than it does through air, which makes the soundscape in the sea much more complicated. If you shout on land, the sound doesn't go very far, but whale calls travel sometimes hundreds of miles, as do the sounds of earthquakes and underwater landslides. It's quite noisy down there, like a cocktail party. As ocean water gets hotter, all those sounds are traveling farther and faster, and scientists aren't yet sure how that might affect the animals that rely on noise to communicate with each other. The Arctic in particular is warming up to four times as fast as the rest of the planet, which means a lot of warm water accelerates the noises there. On top of all that, humans are polluting the oceans with more and more noise, from huge ships, for instance. That further modifies the soundscape and disrupts how whales and other marine mammals communicate. But by using underwater microphones called hydrophones, scientists have been spying on those animals. That's been helping warn cargo ships when a whale might be nearby so they can slow down. That gives the whale more time to escape. So as the ocean soundscape is still largely mysterious, scientists are making progress on better understanding how it might be transforming.
0: Hey man, I just wanted to play that because it was so much stuff that I had not thought of. Like I had never thought about like the ocean having sounds. And now it's flipping up. Who do the, who do the fish write a letter to? What manager can the fish holler at about this? Gabe, you got anything on that?
1: I did think it was wild that sound travels farther and faster in water than it does on land
0: is it that i guess it doesn't like degrade since it's in air there's room for it to you know kind of dissipate and break up like i guess i don't know that much about the composition of sound to understand you know like at some point you can't hear it anymore but i don't fully understand why so maybe that's what it is that water i don't know like all of that i thought was just really i didn't have any take on it or anything i just thought that you guys would like to learn something about nature we handling the earth right now. Hey, this is Bomani. You have reached the right time voicemail. Say whatever you want. Get creative with it. But this is your place to talk back to the show. So talk back. Peace. Alright, Bo. Had an
1: unfortunate typo last week. Not to draw further attention to it, but A listener of the show thought it was a good time to maybe try and make the voicemail segment be worse typos.
0: Yes, I'll tell you another terrible typo I had once. I was doing a presentation in graduate school, and let me tell you, that presentation stunk. My group was mediocre, and the only thing that could possibly save us was my personal charisma. I am not exaggerating. So anyway, one of the words on one of the slides was supposed to be shift. It wasn't. Yeah, the ship was already sinking, just so you know. And, I mean, I didn't fail. Well, I passed. But I went with flying colors. I do write the podcast
1: description multiple times a week. And I will tell you, I read that thing 10 to 12 times. (laughs) Just in case. Our three entrants for today, none of them left their name and location, of course. But here's our first one.
5: Hey, Bomani and Gabe. So my story isn't exactly graphic in the sense of images, but more so in terms of the words used. So back in the day when I was 15 years old, my responsibility at the local mosque was to create a prayer timetable chart. So pretty much what it is, it's that Muslims pray five times a day, but every single prayer time shifts a couple of minutes each day. So you create that one month log chart and, you know, you send it out to the local community. And we had a checks and balance system. So my job was to create the document and send the Word document over to my boy, Horace, and he would, you know, do a check on it and correct any mistakes I made him made. Now, the thing is, me and Horace were very close. He was a good friend of mine. So I used to, you know, we would joke around with each other. So on the top of the document, because I assumed he would, you know, review it like he should have, uh, I assumed he would do it. So I simply wrote down on top of it, Horace, you're off, And, you know, I sent it out to him. To my surprise, he actually didn't review it that month for whatever reason it was a very easy project that I had to do so I don't blame him for not reviewing it in hindsight kind of wish I thought about it he just printed out and we sent it out to the local communities you know I got all these people 50 plus year old men and women from Indian subcontinent origins calling me and scolding me left and right let's just say the following month I was not in charge of creating that timetable anymore that's my story have a good day, guys.
0: Yo, I got to be honest. The person that needs to be really bad about this is Horace. I keep hearing about all this talk that you're getting from the old, from the grown-ups screwing you. Yo, you called Horace an F and B in front of the elders and everybody else. Yeah, Horace. Horace needs to holler at you. By the way, uh, shout out for what sounds like a bit of a cultural exchange that's going on here. In fact, Gabe, we were just talking about this with our buddy Adi the other day, just about how, you know, if you are Muslim in America, chances are you're going to interact with a decent number of black people because, you know, we we got down with the Muslim thing, right? Like you have this exposure to that. So I don't know what our man's first name was, but I imagine Horace, I see him in his bow tie all the way from here. Well, maybe not the bow tie. He might have gone over there and been like, nah, this is a little bit too wild. But he might have kept a bow tie.
1: All right, here's our next one
6: typo the worst typo i ever made on text was about 10 years ago i had just started this job and i still had that new hire glow um where i actually wanted to talk to my coworkers and i noticed one day that one of our coworkers hadn't been in the office for a couple of days so i started asking around and i'm like hey what happened to so and so is everything okay and someone told me hey you didn't hear so and so's brother died so she's out of the office and so i said oh what Great way for me to show that I care about this person by sending them a text message. So I never, at this point in my life, had never really lost someone. So I didn't know what to say. So I Googled what to tell someone when they lose someone, which is shows you just how much of an empath I am. I'm Googling how to show feelings and emotions, and so I find a couple articles and I say, okay, this is what I'm going to text. So what I tried to text was how are you doing? Sorry to hear about your brother. But what I ended up texting was, hey, how's your brother doing? (laughs) As soon as that text message goes out, I then see what happened, and I start bombarding with more texts, like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. What I was trying to say was, how are you doing? Sorry to hear about your brother. How did this? How did this? And then as I'm sending a flurry of texts, she just goes, it's okay, really, period. Now that I'm older, um, a little bit of words of wisdom to anybody that has lost someone or wants to meet someone that has lost someone and doesn't know those words to say, if you don't know what to say, don't say anything at all.
0: Gabe, how exactly did you make this gentleman make this typographical error? graphical error About the only person confused on the execution?
1: I mean, maybe it was Siri. Sometimes you'll say something, and then it'll auto correct the
0: construction of what you said. Next time, just send a gif of somebody pouring out of forty. She'll understand. I not <laughs> could have been worse than what you did. This is for my homies. Maybe that, or send a gift, flowers, plant. Yeah, plants and flowers. You can get them there the same day, boy. Same day.
1: All right, Bo. Here's our last one.
3: What's going on, Bo? Uh, my story about a typo in an email. So I had applied for a new job. It was work at home, and I was supposed to start on September the sixth. There ended up being a delay on their part with the paperwork for my laptop. So the recruiter called me and was just like, "Hey, man, there's a mess up with the uh laptop. We have to push you back to another pay period." So, my start date went from September sixth to September twentieth. And he let me know that he was going to send me an email just so I could have all the official paperwork for management. So he sends me an email. The first line is supposed to read, Apologies for the Inconvenience. It ended up reading Apologies for the Incontinence, which I said and laughed at that. And I was like, Oh, man, they're giving Boo Boo the Fool a whole new meeting. All right, man. Enjoy the show. We'll talk <laughs> to you soon. Later.
0: Well played, my brother. Well played. That's all I need to say about that is. Well played. But hey, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Right Time. We do this three times a week. Gabe Basset and handle everything behind the scenes. Thank you, sir. Also, thank you to our, if you haven't heard, contributors. Thanks to Grace Kay of Business Insider. Check out her story about Elon Musk trying to colonize Mars. Thanks to Julian Lucas of The New Yorker. Check out his story on the movement to reclaim Africa's stolen art. And thanks to Matt Simon of Wired magazine check out his story about how the soundscape of the ocean is changing remember follow the right time rate us review us give us five stars you only give us four stars i'm inclined to believe you are a hater and we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days
2: take it easy thanks for checking out the right time with Bomani jones podcast
3: you can listen or follow on the espn app or wherever you listen to podcasts
2: the right time
3: with Bomani jones